Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. All right. How you doing, everybody? Casey Ryan here again for another episode of The Cutting Room 4, a little podcast that I started to showcase any entertainers and creative types uh, from all walks. I like to say, if you've got a story to tell or a project to sell, then I want to hear from you. Uh, easiest way to get a hold of me is on Twitter. You can ask anybody that knows me. I'm engaged on there all the time at Cutting Room MRB, or you can hit me up on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Cutting Room MRB. Uh, if you have a project that you want to promote, if you want to come on air and talk about it, if you just want me to get a mention for you, uh, I've been plugging this uh, Fourth Monkey comic, uh, which you can find at thefourthmonkeycomic.com, uh, which you can find on Kickstarter, uh, which is an anthology uh, of about eight different stories by eight different writer and artist teams, uh, each of which deals with an important social history, whether it's animal poaching or uh, uh, any of the other major social ills, environmentalism, things like that. Uh, Really, really, really interesting premise, so check that out if you can. Um, so the reason that you're listening to this now or downloading it later, I've got a very special episode uh, lined up for you today. Uh, my guest is Anita de France, and um, I just wanted to get in a quick uh, thank you to, to our mutual friend, uh, Tracy McCormick, uh, who is a, uh, a publicist and a public relations manager based out of the Arizona area who was instrumental in setting this interview up, in addition to uh, several others recently, a really good person to know. So again, thank you to, uh, to Tracy and Lightfinder Public Relations for this. Uh, but just to give you some information um, on Anita, uh, she is a proud member of the International Olympic Committee, uh, and she was also a part of a group that uh, secured the successful bid to have the Olympics in Los Angeles, uh, the Summer Games in Los Angeles in 2028. Uh, also herself an Olympian, and right when I was getting ready to celebrate my first birthday, uh, you know, a little bit earlier than that, in the, in the summer of 1976, she was actually up here in Montreal competing in this Olympian herself. Uh, on the women's rowing team uh, and uh, managed to win a bronze medal in the process of doing that. And if that's not cool enough, that was actually in the, you know, from the I didn't know that file, uh, that was the first time that women's rowing had actually been on the Olympic program. And I, I, again, I didn't know that. So it's kind of an interesting little piece of trivia about the Montreal Games. Um, also author of a book called My uh, Olympic Life, uh, which is about to or just recently uh, got a, a digital release. Uh, and is the winner of uh, multiple accolades. Uh, the list is so long that I couldn't uh, name them all here, but uh, not the least of which was uh, in 2011, Newsweek actually named her as one of the 150 women who shake the world. And, uh, you know, she's given interviews on CNN and the Today Show and Next Stop, the Cutting Room Floor. So I'm proud to have her on here uh, today. So uh, the Cutting Room Floor proudly welcomes Anita de France. Uh, Anita, how are you? Thank you. I'm very happy to be on your show. Thank you very much. So the, the first question I always have for everybody when they're on here for the first time, Anita, is just a bit of an icebreaker. Did, did I get all of your bio information right, or was there anything that I left out that you'd like to make mention of? No, it's correct. Uh, I am a, an Olympian, and I'm a member of the International Olympic Committee. I'm delighted to say I was elected vice president at our session last week, so I get to serve as that for four years, which is a very uh, important 
position to have. Uh, and uh, a vice president of the of the whole committee, or, or yes, uh, really, yep. congratulations. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. It's uh, it's a great privilege and honor to be elected, and uh, it's actually my second time around. And uh, remarkably, the first time was in uh, was 20 years ago in 1997. I had the privilege of being the first woman ever elected a vice president. So it's nice that I could come back. So, uh, how, how many people are on on the the level of the vice president? I, I gather that it would be sort of an international group. Is that right, or? Yes, it's the International Olympic Group. There are four of us, and right now the first vice president, who is the one who served now, is now serving his fourth year, is Mr. Yu from China. Next to him is Mr. Erdner from, uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. Next is Samaranch Jr. from Spain. And next is Mr. Erdner from Turkey. And then I am the fourth of the four vice presidents, and I'm from the United States of America. So, yes. so, how, so how, how did you uh, make the transition from from actually being an Olympian to you know taking this a step further in your career and and you know joining the the uh-huh. organizational setup of uh, of the games itself? I mean that must have been an interesting process. It was, and indeed, it had something to do with Montreal. Um, we were uh, we go through processing to get our uniforms, and this is back in nineteen. Uh, 76, when the only way you could get the Olympic rings on any clothing was to be a member of the team. It was before there were uh, licensed, uh, licensing and much of anything else. So we were going to get our, our team, we were, our, our gear, and we were the last ones through processing. And it turned out they ran out of uniforms before the women's uh, rowing team got there. Oh, and, Yeah. Somehow I was elected captain. I don't know if I just forgot to step back when anyone, everyone else did, but I was elected captain, and so it became my responsibility to get the uniforms for the team. And uh, during the games, I would, I, I first of all, I found out that there was a place where the NOCs, the National Olympic Committees, had offices in the village. And I found the U.S. Olympic Committee's office, and I visited there every day asking about the uniforms. So I suppose that was the beginning of my activist era trying to get the uniforms. It took me a year to get to everyone all that they should have gotten during that one day of processing. So um, I was interested in finding out why the U.S. had neglected to have enough uniforms for its team. They knew we were coming. And uh, that's how we got started. And the USOC had an interesting uh, policy at the time. Athletes, we had something called the Athletes Advisory Committee, which still exists. And athletes elect representatives from each sport. And then you had, because we had both men's and women's rowing, we got two, one from the women and one from the men. And we served on this council, and then we elected members from that council to serve on the board of the U.S. Olympic Committee. And I was elected to serve on the board. And um, much to my surprise, later in that, no, the beginning of the next year, the very beginning of 77, I was at a rowing meeting and I got a call. Someone got a call and they came back from the call and said, Anita, you've been elected to the executive. It was called the Administrative Council Committee, Administrative Committee at the time, but it was essentially the executive board of the USOC. So, in a sense, I kind of rocketed up to that level. And um, I was working on behalf of athletes ever since. 
And it had to be exciting for you, too. You know, I mean, that was a defining moment in the history of the Games, too, in the sense that uh, it was the first time that women's rowing was on the program, right? Yeah, yes, and it was the first time several of uh, the uh, team sports, basketball, women's basketball was on the program for the first time. And even though there were team sports for the first time, we were still at about only 22% of the athletes there, and I noticed there weren't many women there, and I also noticed that we were segregated. The men were in two-thirds of the housing, and we were in one of those. I don't know if you remember the pyramids that were the the housing. Uh, I guess they still exist. Uh, they're, they're, they're still there. So, yep. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're, uh, they're condos now for, uh, for people that live in that part of the city, but, yeah, they're still there. Oh, still in use. That's great. Um, and we were, I think we were half of one pyramid, the women, and then the men were in the rest of them. So we had to go, and that's why I said I had to find the USOC headquarters, and um, it was a bit of a interesting journey to find it. But anyway, I, you know, I, I didn't understand why the women had to be in one place and the men in another. We were mostly adults. There were some young athletes, I guess, gymnastics had uh, a few youngsters and swimming, but most of us, I think the average age then was 25, and now it's uh, more like 28, I think. But we were adults, and it seemed odd that we would have to be segregated. But that was, I guess, a policy, uh, which I'm proud to say we changed in 84. Um, I had the responsibility for planning the villages, and I, I thought, well, this is silly. Why do we have this segregation? And NOC, National Olympic Committee, can decide where its athletes will live, and we just need to give them enough beds and rooms so that they can house their athletes as they please. And so Peter Uroth, who was the uh, president of the organizing committee, and Harry Usher, who was his executive, uh, second-in-command, um, said, okay, well, yeah, you can ask the IOC to change it, but you have to ask them. So I had the privilege of going before the executive board and asking if uh, we couldn't just drop this nonsense of having two separate sets of housing and let the NOC decide where its athletes stayed. And I remember one board, board member saying extraordinary, another saying revolutionary, but they accepted it, and in fact, it was Sarajevo that first had the desegregated village because they were in the winter in in February before our games were in uh, July to August. So we weren't the first, but I'm pleased to say I had something to do with changing the policy. Now, I'm kind of curious, did you encounter any kind of pushback culturally from any of the the member nations that said, you know what, this is not something that we should be doing, or or did they all say uh, no? I did not. I don't know if the IOC did, uh, because I would not have been privy to any of that. But why would there be uh, if there were those who felt, I mean, they could divide the team in ways that they wouldn't uh, be mixed at all. They still had the opportunity to do that through the housing. So I, I don't know why there would be a problem. It would be easier to administer to the team if you were all in one place, I figured. And that seemed to be the case. There were no objections that I heard. Okay, good, good. Um, now, since the uh, you know the games in uh, in Los Angeles in 1984, I, I I know that you've actually done a lot of work yourself to to support youth organizations in sports. Is that right? Yes, I had the privilege of being one of the uh, first staff members of what's called was called then the Amateur Athletic Foundation of Los Angeles, 
Uh, and uh, two years later, we became, uh, no, that's not true. Two years later, I became the president of uh, the foundation and stayed that for 28 years and had the chance to really build the, the foundation and work uh, with our partners to make sure that kids had a good sports experience. And one of the most important things we did uh, was teach people how to coach. Too often, especially here in these uh, the United States, is you're given a clipboard and a whistle and told that now you are the coach. Right. There's just not opportunities to be trained. And so we provided that. And uh, when I left the foundation uh, two years ago as president, uh, I had uh, there had been over 75,000 people had gone through our coaching program. Really? Uh, wow. Yes. Yep. And it wasn't, you could come, well, it was, first of all, it was online. And the information is still online. It, it's now called the um, LA84 Foundation, which probably should have been its name from the beginning because the AAF was just too confusing. Um, and uh, I guess you had to know that LA84 referred to the Los Angeles Games of 1984. But if you were curious, it wasn't that hard to find out what LA84 meant. And as LA84, we were the legacy of the 84 games, and uh, again, during the time I was there, we received $93 million as the uh, part of the surplus from the 84 games. A deal had been made back in, I guess it was in 78, yeah, 77 or 78, that 60% of the surplus would go to the U.S. Olympic Committee and 40% would stay in, in Southern California. Now, we didn't know that it would be a surplus, but if there was one, that was how it was to be divided, and the IOC would be its it would be paid paid its share from the television um, television rights fees, and was paid. In fact, a twenty million dollar check went to the IOC in 1980, four years ahead of the games. And typically, the IOC, if they received anything, it received it after the games were over. So it was trendsetting, and it changed the IOC. They had hadn't had money before. And now they had $20 million, and that wasn't all they would get from L.A. But back to L.A., um, we also had a, a library, a sports library. It wasn't uh, particularly well organized, and we had what was called the Helms Hall of Fame collection, a, a collection of memorabilia and ephemera, ephemera, sorry, ephemera from, uh, that started back in, after the 1932 games. And it was held at a place on Venice Avenue called the Helms Bakery, which went out of business when grocery stores started having, you know, lots and lots of bread instead of having it delivered and milk delivered every day. You could go to the supermarket and get it. It lasted long enough, etc. So Helms Bakery went out of business, but uh, the collection continued. And um, Peter Ubroth, upon becoming president of the LA84 Organizing Committee, learned about it and purchased it and then uh, found a place to put it and uh, in partnership with uh, a bank that was also sponsor of the games. It was called First Interstate Bank. It's now part of Wells Fargo. Uh, they set up uh, a museum in the, the uh, location on Adams uh, Boulevard in Los Angeles. And uh, in 1985, the LA84 Foundation moved into that building and the museum kind of went into the storage and it was displayed in parts and the foundation took over and then we built a 
a library and um, meeting resource center and meeting room so that we could undertake studies. We could call, create conventions and conferences to, to study sports. And I'm really proud of the work that we did in that area over the years. So not only was it uh, making grants to sports organizations, teaching people how to coach, but we also undertook research to find out how to do better in sports. And one of the things, among the many things we did was um, do research on uh, ACL injuries because it was an epidemic among girls and women. And we found uh, working with a group called, uh, called SMOG, it's Santa Monica Orthopedic Group, and uh, the lead doctor there, we created a protocol to help um, uh, stop all of these ACL injuries. And it was very, very effective. And that, too, was on our website. We are an early adopter of websites, which I'm really proud of, too. So yeah, now, one, one of the things I've always kind of been curious, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Did you, have, uh, uh, did you have anything else to say on that point? Or? Oh, I'm sure I do, but go ahead with your question. Okay. All right, all right. <laughs> Uh, one of the things I've always kind of been curious about, you know, speaking as completely an outsider, but uh, are there, you know, is there much dialogue between the organizers of the Winter Olympic Games versus the Summer Olympic Games, or are you guys completely separate entities under under yourselves? Uh, we are. Well, now there is less than there might have been before because we're in two different years. Uh, there was a okay. time when both the summer and winter were together. In '76, um, actually, the Winter Games were supposed to be in Denver, but Denver decided they didn't want to host the games, so they went back to Innsbruck. And uh, in '80, uh, the Moscow Games were held, and in '80, it was Lake Placid that hosted uh, the Olympic Winter Games. So, but then starting in '94, uh, the Winter Games, '92, both were together, and then there was a separate. Olympic Winter Games in 94 and went on to that four-year cycle, so 94, 98, et cetera, while the Olympic Games maintained their original quadrennial schedule. So it would have been 92, 96, and so forth. Now, with the games coming, with the Winter Games admittedly coming, you know, this February, right, uh, one of the stories that's in the news right now, and uh, a friend of mine brought this to my attention, was that um, amid security concerns, and every you know, games represents its own challenges, and I'll ask you about Rio a little bit later. But mm-hmm. um, uh, one of the stories that, that's being talked about now is that France is actually considering skipping this one because of uh, of security concerns. I, I was just wondering if you. If well, you I I read the read the same article. I sorry, I interrupted you. I apologize. Um, shall I go on? Yeah, no, no I'm, I'm, yeah, I finished my question, so I uh, just wondered what your thoughts were on it. Well, I read the, the article, and it was the uh, sports um, the sports secretary, that's not the right title, the, um, she is in charge of sports for the country, so that's the government, and in, in France, the government supports sport. But I hope, just as happened in 1980, uh, the team went perhaps over the ejections of the government, but the team went to the games in Moscow. And I hope if there's any issue that, again, the athletes will be spared the political stuff and will be able to go. I, you know, If security is an issue, I can tell you that the Olympic Games are the most secure place in the world because the entire world now supports the uh, security of the games as it's 
started to do in 76, um, the U.S. and all of the, the NATO groups and uh, others are involved with making sure that the games are secure. So it truly is the safest place in the world. I guess you're you're speaking to the um, at least the gamesmanship uh, verbally being contested now with uh, uh, my nation as well as the nation of uh, gosh uh, D- uh, DPR Korea. Uh, I guess it's, that's what it's called. Yeah, and uh, the leaders of both. But uh, I feel pretty confident that. The world is not going to be on the brink, brink, brink of self-destruction, which that would mean. Uh, um, well, yeah, I mean, you raise an interesting point, right, that it would have to be extremely secure if you've got dignitaries coming in from all over the planet to support their athletes and, and you know, the athletes themselves and their families. So, you know, I, I would gather that would have to be a, you know, one of the most secure places on Earth for that couple of weeks. Sure. And uh, again, it would be, I can't even think of what would bring us to nuclear war or anything like that. Uh, and, you know, I I am an optimist by nature. And uh, certainly the Olympic Games are a great um, instance of why people should be optimistic about the world. The athletes come from all over the world. They come in peace and compete for a very scarce resource, which are Olympic medals. They live together, and they eat together, and they know that they are not enough medals to go around, but they respect one another, and that is what we need more of throughout the world. Um, now, stepping back a second, you know, the, the Olympic Games were in Rio, you know, fairly recently, right? And, and the, you know, the top news story there was, of course, the, uh, you know, the whole notion of the, uh, you know, the Zika virus being a threat, right? Uh, were there any unique challenges to you or, or, you know, what kinds of questions did you find yourself fielding, especially with a waterborne sport like rowing, where, uh, where, you know, the concerns were a little bit higher? Well, there were several issues. Uh, Brazil had so many things happen to it in the seven years between it was the time it was given the, the right to host the games and the games actually happened. Uh, there were issues about water and concerns about water quality um, because of several things happened. One uh, was the promise to clean up the uh, the bay, which was part of their bid. It would give them the chance to finally do that, which would be expensive and would need government funding. And here was a chance to do it with the games coming and since that was going to be the place where there would be sailing and other sports, for example, the the um, long-distance swim could be there and uh, triathlon would be there. So it was a chance to clean up uh, the gulf, I mean the bay there. And then where rowing was, it was a, a separate inlet off of the ocean and a lake there in the center of, of um, Rio and one time not too far away from the games, maybe two years out, there was a, a fish kill where the fish were floating on top of the water and people decided, were, were uh, afraid that it was because of the water quality. Unfortunately, uh, I don't know exactly what happened, but some people say it was something that happens from time to time uh, where it's either too hot or something happens to the water quality and the fish die off. It happened that once, and they tested the water 
over and over again since that time. And I, for one, went rowing a year before the games in that same piece of water and, of course, got a little bit of water sprayed and no illness, nor none of the... It was a rowing club that I went out with, and it was the junior team, and all of them were quite safe. So there were a lot of rumors about the water quality and uh, the water quality in the bay. They did not get all of the work done that they set out to do, but they tested the water constantly and made sure that it was okay for the the sailors and the swimmers, and all of them came back healthy, so it it worked. Now, Zika was something completely new, Um, although when more research was done, it was found that there were instances of this in other parts of the world over time, but there seemed to be, for the first time, this group of of infants born with smaller heads, and the, the thing that seemed to be consistent was they were in areas where mosquitoes were, and therefore they tracked it back to believing that these mosquitoes were uh, carrying this disease. It's a terrible disease. Um, but what they did was they sprayed and sprayed and sprayed, and the Olympic Games were held in what was, they were the summer games, but south of the equator, the summer games are actually the winter into spring games and not the dead of summer. So it was the least time for mosquitoes to be swarming and carrying bad things or carrying being there at all. And they sprayed so much, I was a little bit more worried about the <laughs> intensive spray <laughs> about the mosquitoes. But they were determined for that not to be an issue for the athletes. They, of course, the country and the government and the the people there did not want that to be an issue for themselves nor for the athletes who were visiting. Um, I was also kind of of curious, uh, you know, since you you last competed and and you've become, you know, a part of the organization, uh, do you traditionally get to go to the games fairly consistently every time or or do you pick I do. You do, eh? One of the great privileges, and I, I talk about that in the book from time to time, they're different experience. Every city is different every time the games are celebrated. There are different challenges and different successes, and it all helps to, to make the games better each time. Um, it's exciting to be able to do that and to plan ahead, and I'm looking forward to with uh, great optimism about the 2028 20, games here back in my home city of Los Angeles. Um, that's a little bit, it's a long lead time, the longest lead time a city has ever had. And it's rather ironic because of all cities, we probably need the least lead time because most of what we need is already here. But that gives time for more of the uh, transportation public that's already been voted for and funded um, and this major um, arena will be built it's for American football and for a city that has been without a football team for um, a couple of decades. It's ironic that we have two now. And uh, we're going to have this major stadium built to house it, and it will be a part of opening ceremonies and a part of closing ceremonies. And uh, another part will be the uh, Coliseum, which is the longest, um, a coliseum or a major sports arena in the world. It's been there since uh, 1928, and it will certainly be there in 2028. So the Los, that's the Los Angeles Coliseum. 
So, so I, I'm kind of curious how you know that that was another one of my questions is how much of the uh, the infrastructure were you able or are you going to be able to leverage uh, from the last time you had the games in '84 or even previous to that based on what you had is is pretty much all of it still intact or is there a lot of it that needs to be rebuilt or well that's a good question um, much of it is intact but what we'll be using is facilities that have been built since then. The only facilities from '84 that we'll need, we'll plan, we plan to use, and they most of them still exist. Uh, but the ones we plan to use are the Coliseum, and the Rose Bowl, and also UCLA, which was one of the two villages in '84. This time there'll be one village, and that will be at UCLA because since '84, both UCLA and USC, which was the other village, have found that they needed more housing for its uh, student body. And so they built a lot more, and UCLA will be building a bit more housing between now and 2024. And so it will be certainly well in use and ready for 2028. And USC has just finished a major housing complex, uh, but we determined that it wasn't quite enough housing to put everybody in, and UCLA was a better choice for the uh, Olympic Village. We still plan to use the housing at SC for other purposes. but uh, So there's just been more than we had in 84. So with the exception of the, the, the things I just mentioned, um, we don't need to use what's left from 84, but there's more that will be available. For example, next to the Coliseum, right now they're building a an American, I'm sorry, a, a soccer field, we call it soccer, a football field, arena where the sports arena was and it's going up almost minute by minute and certainly will be completed in another year and will be well in use by 28. So we have a great wealth of facilities and more come on on board every day and we can use those and don't have to use the ones from 84. The ones from 84 are still in use primarily and being used uh, for new purposes. But again, we don't have to invest in that because uh, the people utilizing them are investing in that. So what would you say uh, are, I'm kind of curious about this, what, what would you say are some of the unique challenges then of securing the games for a second time in the same city? I mean, the, 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 there has to be a, a unique set of objections that would be presented from uh, from other competing cities and say, you know what, oh, he's already had them, maybe we should have, and fairly recently, I mean, 84 was, you know, 23 years ago, but, but what, what to you are, are some of the unique challenges that you, you see as part of this? Do you mean in terms of uh, competing with other cities or with securing it? In, ter- in terms of you know securing a successful bid, a second round for the same place. Bid. Well, uh, we came uh, first. Your National Olympic Committee has support has to support a city, and there was a competition among cities, but not as we'd done it before. This time, the leadership of the USOC visited the cities that uh, had the best. Uh, potential for hosting the games and talked with the the mayor and whatever bid leadership there might have been in the cities uh, to get a sense for what they were offering. And although Boston was chosen first, Boston later returned (laughs) the opportunity to the USOC and then the USOC selected uh, Los Angeles, which I had thought they would have selected the first time around, but 
I'm part of the day, and we didn't. We selected Boston. Um, So the first challenge is to be the city selected by your National Olympic Committee to be presented to the IOC for a bid. And once that's done, we started with uh, Rome and Hamburg and uh, Budapest, as well as Paris and Los Angeles. But uh, one by one, uh, other cities withdrew, so it came down to just Los Angeles and Paris. And Paris had a, you know, their 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 uh, main theme was that uh, we haven't hosted the games for 100 years. This would be the 100th ceremony, 100th anniversary of the 1924 games, and we're we're a, a country that has supported the Olympic movement. In fact, Pierre de Coubertin, who created the modern Olympic movement, was a Frenchman, and certainly we deserve the chance to host the games again. And so they did, uh, you know, they put in a great bid. Uh, L.A., which is a city that could host the Games with two years' notice. Uh, I've said for too long because it was uh, not helpful to us this time around. (laughs) It was just the opposite, so I stopped saying it. Um, uh, Was put in a great bid. The best bid I've seen, I've reviewed, uh, let's see, I think 76, 75 or 76 bids in my time as an IOC member. And this was by far the best um, bid I have ever seen because so much of it was utilizing existing facilities, which is what um, the uh, policy, the IOC, um, uh, let's see how we put it in, President Bach, uh, with a lot of work from all parts of the Olympic movement, all shareholders developed this uh, policy, set of policies called uh, IOC 2020, which was to bring uh, the best the best policies into the Olympic movement, um, both in governance and in managing the games. And as for managing the games, there was a lot of emphasis on using existing facilities and not making grand expenditures, which uh, our capital expenditures, which of course stay in the city and may cost a lot for the citizens, but it stays there and continues its use. And you would certainly never spend millions and billions of dollars for two weeks of sport. You would do this for your community for a long time. That would in, enhance the, the community. So we were looking instead to find uh, uses of facilities that already existed so that the cost of hosting the games would not continue to rise because it became a big problem. We didn't do perhaps a good enough job of explaining uh, the cost. For example, Sochi was reported at 50 or 50, well, I forget, it was 51 or $2 billion, which seems like a whole lot. Now, who would spend that much for two weeks of sport and then the, the 10 days of the Paralympic Games. No one with much sanity would spend that much, of course. What they were doing was creating a training facility for the Russian team because the winter training facility had been in one of the former Soviet states and the Russians no longer had access to it. So for these 20 years, they hadn't had a training site and so this was their opportunity to build one and also to create a, a resort area for its own citizens so they wouldn't have to travel to other places to have the experience of uh, winter sports. So it was for the long term, not for 
uh, you know, a total of a month worth of, of international sports. And it's been used every winter. The housing that they built has been used, so it was a, a good investment. But that was not a cost to the games. The cost of the games was much less, and indeed there was a, a, a modest surplus of about $50 million from the actual running of the games. I recall Montreal, there was a big hue and cry after that because the citizens were, quote, left with this huge tax. But as you mentioned earlier, the Olympic Village is still in use and people are living there as in condos, which was the original intent for after use. So I'm not, I, I understand at the time the citizens felt that they were being forced to spend taxpayers' money, taxpayers' money, on uh, what was built for the games, but it was not built just for the games. It was built for, uh, uh, we hope, a need, and certainly to be used for for decades after the games time, which again, two weeks, and then Paralympic Games, uh, another ten days. Uh, yeah, I mean, we we, we still make jokes about that uh, once in a while about the Olympic Stadium specifically. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the thing is falling apart, and and uh, we don't have a baseball team anymore. But, but I mean, you know, you, your logic is sound in the sense that, yeah, you're you're providing, you know, living quarters for for thousands of people in the form of the Olympic Village and things like that. And and the uh, and the rowing basin is still being used for private use. I mean, we we had a team building event down there where we uh, we did dragon boat races with my company. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, I came up for the 25th anniversary, and we had a. Couple of races going on there uh, at the time, which was also a good thing. Um, I still remember that uh, that race back long ago. It's something that stays with any Olympian. Their competition at the games is part of their life from then on. And uh, by the way, to be an Olympian, you actually have to compete at the games. You can't just be a member of the team. You have to have competition, and that's how you become an Olympian. Okay, so like if you're you know an, an alternate and you don't actually get a chance to compete, right? Yes, the, 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 defi- the definition doesn't apply to you. Uh, it does not. Really? Uh, okay. Yep, and that was one of the great, great, great horrors of the 1980, where athletes were kept home for political reasons. That even though they might, they will always be members of their own Olympic team, like the U.S. Olympic team. If they didn't compete in games before or after, they're not Olympians. And that is really sad because they did everything they needed to do. They were selected, and then they were not allowed to go. Yeah, to, to get that close and, and you know meet all the qualifications, but not be able to to go past the final. For no reason. As, yeah, for no as reason. I point out in my in, in in my Olympic life, I I fought against that boycott because I didn't believe it was right, and I believe that the athletes were the only ones who had the right to decide whether they wanted to compete or not. Once they had been selected to the team, it was only they. Since in particular at that time in the U.S., certainly the athletes funded themselves. There was no government funding, not one penny of federal funds or state or local funds went into training athletes. It was all, we were all doing it on our own. We were private citizens uh, hoping to do something remarkable for, you know, under our nation's flag and wearing our nation's color and representing our nation. But we were not uh, funded by the government. And yet the government took away from us this opportunity. Well, they blame it on the USOC. 
USOC was squeezed to vote in favor of keeping the team at home. And I'm delighted. I'm sad for the Canadian team that didn't get to go. Sad for the the Japanese and the uh, West Germans. There was still West and East Germany then. And a handful of other nations that were kept home. But I'm really proud of the countries that win. And even Puerto Rico competed in 1980 games. Right. right. So, it, it's you know, you should not use politics. And this is to, to punish athletes, and this is why I believe that the the Olympic Winter Games will, will go on as planned. Uh, now, to take a sidestep and talk about the book, you, you've alluded to that a couple of times uh, over the course of our, our time together here, but uh, first of all, when did you actually complete the initial publishing of the book, and, and secondly, you know, what ground do you cover? I mean, is it really a, a complete comprehensive biography, or or do you focus on the part of your life that specifically pertains to the Olympics, or do you cover the whole thing? Well, I think it covers even my ancestors to a certain point because I do have, um, uh, I'm really proud of my history, which probably helped me be who I am okay. to a large extent. It covers my uh, 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 great-grandfather, who was a part of what was called the uh, Exodusters, or the Pap Singleton movement of people who had been emancipated from slavery or had not been enslaved African-Americans, and they moved primarily from Tennessee into Kansas. And my great-grandfather was one of the leaders of that group, Alonzo David de France. And um, my history goes back further in the U.S., but that was uh, an important moment. And my grandfather was also a great civil rights leader in Indianapolis, and he ran the um, YMCA, which is called the Senate Avenue YMCA, back then, and, and actually until the 70s, there was a YMCA in Washington that had the street name instead of a, an individual person's name as an honor to that person because it helped African-American men know where the Y was because it was the one place they could rely upon for housing and potentially meals while they were traveling. So it was Senate Avenue Y, so people knew that if you got to Senate Avenue, you could find the YMCA and be able to stay a night or two if you were traveling. Um, my grandfather, uh, Faber and Edward de France, had uh, created a Y that just did a lot of good work, and he was remarkable in his determination to have uh, civil rights afforded to all. He had annual meetings, what they were called monster meetings, which I always thought was funny. Why well, call them monsters? But it was because of the size. They were the largest very large meetings, right? and he would invite the leaders of the African-American community at the time to come and speak, and he also invited uh, uh, white folks to speak as well. Uh, but it was just a, a series every year that you could count on uh, seeing great speakers and hearing them, and so it became very famous for that, and he did a lot. He helped... Uh, and make sure that uh, the uh, Big Ten basketball teams were in- integrated. He went to the president of Indiana University himself and basically told him if he there'd be problems if he didn't do the right thing and let the African-American player actually play instead of sitting on the bench, which is what was happening in the Big Ten at the time. Um, and my father was and my mother met at Indiana University, both working on civil rights, my father was president of the NAACP, of uh, the campus uh, chapter of the NAACP, and uh, my mom was one of the first five uh, 
women to integrate the, the student housing at Indiana University. So there's this long history of acting uh, for the rights of others, which I grew up in. So I gave you a short history just there. And then it continues with my not being allowed to take part in sport until I got to college and seeing my brothers able to, but I couldn't figure out why I was not allowed to do this. And I got to college and got my first taste, and then sophomore year started rowing. And uh, as I've learned, they say in Australia and maybe England, then Bob's your uncle. They <laughs> <laughs> so say that in Canada, too. That's okay, the, okay. Yeah, you're usually, usually, uh, it's uh, reminds me of something my grandparents would say. My dad's from northern Ontario, so. Ah, but, uh, okay. Now, now it sounds like you carry this passion with you, you know, in terms of activism and 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 you know, furthering the rights of others. And um, I, I know that you're you're also very proud of the work that you've done with, uh, with something called the the Tubman Truth Corporation. Is that right? Yes, it's it's pretty new. And my goal is to end slavery. There are about 32 million people enslaved as we speak, and there's no reason for that in today's world. It shouldn't be allowed, and we should be aware of it and make it stop it can't stop. Um, it's just people taking, abusing other people. And it, it was wrong when it started, and it's wrong today. And um, so that's what we're working toward and working with partners to to end this vile institution. It's now usually called human trafficking now. And it's not just sexual, it's also work-related. And uh, it's a terrible thing. So that's the goal of Tub and Truth. It's named in honor, of course, of Harriet Tubman, who was my hero, and uh, Sojourner Truth. Um, Harriet Tubman, uh, folks may not know, but she was uh, an amazing woman who was born into slavery and refused to live that way and uh, got her own emancipation by departing, by leaving, escaping, I guess is the right word, escaping uh, the plantation where she was uh, working, and then she tried to have her family come with her, but they they refused. But then she came back to risk her life enough times to bring out more than 300 people from being enslaved, and that kind of courage is amazing. Then, during the Civil War, she was a spy for the Union Army and helped them on an important uh uh, to win an important battle, and eventually they took her gun away from her, deciding that she should not be carrying a weapon, and she, undeterred, continued to support the union's effort and uh, basically uh, worked uh, as a nurse to help uh, the soldiers uh, recover from their wounds, and then later in life uh, created a home for the elderly, and so all her life she gave to others to make their lives better, and that just is a remarkable, remarkable um, life. And then Sojourner Truth was a woman who um, was uh, working hard for the women's right to vote. Uh, She had also been enslaved and uh, then, uh, I think, remember her years, I don't know if the Civil War released her, Emancipation released her, or, but anyway, she was a, Longtime spokesperson for the right of women in this country, and her favorite speech was "Ain't I a woman too?" 
And uh, stepping back to your book for a second, I, I want to make sure we get in a good solid plug for this, but I, I understand that you either recently or are about to have a digital release oh. of, of the book. Yeah. Yes, it should be up pretty soon. The actual publish, pu- publication date for the hardback and so forth is October 17. Um, it's, as they say, at the printers, even as we speak. And uh, it should be up on uh, on Amazon and on... Um, oh, dear. I'm, I've been talking about other things so much. Uh, okay, so um, even the hard copy uh, hasn't come out yet. I, I didn't realize that. I, I couldn't gather that exactly from your website. But uh, you, you're actually waiting on the publication of that part of it, too, next month. Yes, yes. Okay, great. great. Okay, so this is really topical for you, then, with this coming up in a couple of weeks. It is, indeed. And I'm delighted it was... Uh, you know, it was a wonderful experience writing it. I, you know, <laughs> I learned long ago you don't try to do something you know nothing about, and uh, so I had the help of a, uh, a co-writer, Josh Young, and uh, it was a. Uh, it took a while to do it, but not as long as I've heard other people take. So I'm pleased that um, in the two years since I left the the foundation, I've been able to get the games back to the United States and get my book written, which was my, both of which were my goals. So I'm happy that we accomplished both. And it'll be after my birthday, but my birthday month, that it's actually published. So that makes me very happy. Okay, uh, now i got to ask us, are you on the 14th too? Because i got my, my, uh, <laughs> my uh, No, Nope, I'm a little ahead of that. Uh, October 4th. October 4th? Okay, yeah. all right. But I, I, you and a long list of other people, including myself, have their birthdays in October. I'm on the 23rd myself, but uh, uh, yeah. and my best friend Libra. and his father. On, my best friend and his father on the same day. My niece and my nephew. Uh-huh. Everybody. So yeah, and uh, my brother, the younger brother, is uh, also in October. He's on the second. And anyway, that's another story I tell in the book. Anyway. And uh, one last thing I wanted to bring up, just because uh, I, I actually got it last year, I, I had the privilege of, of seeing a Canadian or Marnie McBean speak in Montreal. Uh-huh. Uh, but but I, uh, I I also understand that you do uh, corporate events and, and public speaking engagements too, right? Yes, I do. I've learned that it's a good thing to, to let people know uh, about a lot of things that they might have a little idea about, like people have a little idea about the uh, International Olympic Committee, but don't really know what it is, and uh, also about the the importance of sport in our world. Uh, It's something that I believe is a birthright. It's something we humans do, and certainly in the world of capitalism, the idea of sport and competition uh, is a part of what you do in in this world. uh, And uh, many of the lessons of sport certainly are important in uh, the corporate life, and and so I'm happy to share that information as often as I can. Yeah, it's a, a universal truth in that respect, right? That the, you know, even if you take the athletic component out of it, the, the you know the whole notion of drive for competition is, is something that, that anybody can speak to. I would think, right? Well, and teamwork and understanding teamwork, how yeah, put teams together. And uh, I don't know if Mar- Marty. I know Marty too. She is she is a remarkable athlete, and uh, I'm sure she's a great spokesperson uh, for much that sport has to offer. And uh, teamwork is so essential. And uh, one of the great horrors of not letting women, girls, 
and women take part in sport was the lack of having those experiences which lay the groundwork so for so much of life in the modern community. So I'm delighted that we, we have had Title IX for, uh, is it 25 years now? Uh, and that's made an enormous difference for collegiate women, certainly, and for girls at the high school level, and even a community base where parks can't be uh, baseball, um, diamonds can't be only for baseball, but they can be for softball, and girls get to play on those diamonds as well, which is important. So uh, we're getting to the top of the hour here, Anita, but I, I want to make sure that we get a good solid mention for your websites. Where can people go to either pre-order copy of your book or to uh, you know to keep track of what you're doing, or, or uh, you know just to follow what you're what you're doing, all the great work that you've got going here? Oh, thank you very much. It's uh, pretty easy, AnitaDeFrance.com, and uh, DeFrance might be a little tricky to spell. It's, it's capital D E. Well, we. On the internet, you don't have to have capitals. So I'll just D E. Usually, it's capital F R A N T Z. It's not C E as people might think, but it's T Z. And dot um, com, and you can find out a lot about me. And of course, there is a, a link to uh, Amazon where the book is on presale. And uh, I'm sure the other uh, E versions will be up. I think Kindle is the other one that. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I thought I saw something uh, mentioned about that. That. Uh, yeah. coming to and there'll be all all of those outlets will have it as well. It's important to spread the word, and I hope, in certainly in the U.S., understanding of the importance of sport and understanding of the Olympic movement and the International Olympic Committee are important parts of what I hope the book will do. Uh, Anita, what can I tell you? This has been, you know, a, a proud privilege to have you on here. This has been a great conversation, and, and and certainly, if there's anything I can do to help you promote your book or anything else, then by all means, let me know. Okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. This hour okay. fun for so, me. Well. So that's going to about do it for me today. My guest again has been uh, Anita DeFrance, a U.S. member of the International Olympic Committee. Again, another uh, very big thank you to Tracy McCormick for having set this up. Uh, I'm going to be back next Sunday. I've got a bunch more guests lined up for you and uh, lots more fun to come on the cutting room floor. So until then, uh, on behalf of my guest Anita DeFrance and everybody listening in the chat room, cut, print, wrap, and I am done. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.